Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips video cast episode 16 and podcast number 6. I'm Tom Hayes with Hedge Fund Tips and we have a lot to cover this week so want to get down to it right away. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett for having me on the Liz Clayman show this Monday to talk. Uh, at that point, it was coronavirus and a little bit about earnings, so you can uh, click on that to watch that clip if you want. All these clips are under the Featured On button in the website Hedge Fund Tips, so definitely take a look at that. This is all for the week ending February 7th, 2020. And you can check that out. Second, on Wednesday, I was invited on Yahoo Finance TV. Uh, this was a much longer segment in studio. I want to thank Adam Shapiro, Julie Hyman, and Pamela Mitchell for having me on that show. And this one was pretty important because it was a long segment on energy. You know, this is a down and out sector we've been talking about for the last couple of months. And I uh, laid out the case in, in pretty great detail. We're going to go into it uh, in this week's videocast podcast. Uh, but you definitely want to click here to watch that segment directly on Yahoo. And in about five minutes, it lays out the bulk of the case looking at earnings over the past uh, since 2009, 2016, and today, how earnings have changed relative to price and what are some potentialities moving forward and uh, our opinion about that. So uh, thanks for that opportunity and go ahead and check that out as you're able to. Um, also wanna thank uh, Ellen Chang for having me in her article uh, in US News and World Report on actively managed bond funds and pros and cons. Uh, she asked me for a quote on that. So definitely check out Ellen Chang on Twitter and also in US News and World Report. You can find her at the Featured On. And Meta Singh, who had me in her Reuters article yesterday about coronavirus and China. So there's been a lot of that going on this week. Everyone wants to talk about coronavirus and China. So we'll touch a little bit on that. But what I want to do right now is get down to the brass tacks of this week's theme. As I promised last week, we were going to talk about oil this week and energy because sentiment certainly reached an all-time low uh, in the last seven days with coronavirus, January uh, was a um, weak month for the sector. And um, so let's talk a little bit about with many people calling for the end of energy and a very credible people. So you have to take it serious, seriously uh, when, when smart people are on the other side of a trade. We're going to kind of lay out how we think about it and, and build on the arguments we've made in recent uh, uh, months and our long-term view on the sector. So the article you can find on the site under popular posts, this one actually shut up. This was written yesterday. It's already the most popular post, uh, the end of oil or just the beginning. And we start off with this chart that basically looks at the most hated area of the energy sector, which is the exploration and production sector. They're most leveraged to the price of oil and to have the most leverage as well. But the, the case that we made out to start the article is that if you look at the last two depressions in the industry, and the oil depression in 2016 
and the great financial crisis when everyone was deleveraging in 2009. What I did over the weekend when pessimism got so high uh, the end of last week when uh, several prominent commentators were saying it's the end of the sector, no one cares about it, no one will buy it, and it's over, I decided to spend the weekend burdening myself with the facts and updating my earnings tables and uh, uh, some of the facts about the sector. So I took the top 30 weights of the exploration and production industry as subsector that had comps in 2016 and 2009 and found that in 2009, the top 30 weights, the earnings power of the top 30 weights was $27.29, uh, and the price was trading right here around 20, where it is today, uh, for the sector. In 2016, that earnings power dropped to negative 63.48, so negative earnings power, and was again trading down to this area price. And then when we look at 2020 earnings estimates, the top 30 weights have over $68.49 of earnings power. So it's, it's curious uh, that the price is trading at the same level as when it had negative $63 of earnings power, as when it has positive $68 of earnings power, or when it had even $27 of earnings power compared to 68. So the earnings are up over 150%. The price is trading at the same. And what also, what also is curious, because sentiment is at such an extreme pessimistic level right now, uh, WTI crude in 2009 got down to $33 a barrel. In 2016, got down to $26 a barrel. There was a prominent commentator that's no longer around who said that he would never see oil above $44 again in his lifetime. I hope he's still around, but uh, he's no longer uh, commentating. And, uh, and now we're at $51 a barrel with $68 of earnings, and the price is, is trading down to this uh, very low range. A lot of it's compounded by the short-term coronavirus fears and the hit to uh, uh, China and global GDP, the short-term hit. Uh, but we're going to just kind of stick to the facts, lay out the case. It's only our opinion. You choose what you want to do. The terms are above. This is not investment advice, uh, but just kind of how we're thinking about it. And, and uh, the old story goes, you know, Mark Twain once said, reports of my death had been greatly exaggerated. And the origin of the story was, uh, and I feel this way about the energy sector, with uh, 7.7 billion people coming out of poverty, another 2.5 billion people going to join the population in, uh, uh, in the next 30 years. Uh, the composition of, demand of energy will be more and more renewables as a percentage. But to bring people out of poverty and to support the population growth, uh, the aggregate demand for fossils will rise marginally over time. So in order to sustain everything, renew, we're going to need as much of everything as we can get. And, uh, and that's just not what's being priced right now. What's being priced right now is, is a belief that fossils can be 100% displaced, and there's just no evidence of that in current technology that that's going to be the case in the near term, maybe long term down the road. But uh, it's... it's um, it's it's not a um, a viable theory at present. 
So we'll embrace the renewables, we'll embrace the population growth, we'll embrace people coming into the middle class, but that's going to have to be fueled by something. And we have low cost between natural gas, between uh, oil and gas, and, and let's talk about the people who, who produce it. So, so basically, uh, Mark Twain, uh, in the year 1897, he was in debt. He decided to travel to London to do a speaking tour so he could earn money and pay off his debts. And a rumor began that he was sick until uh, like the game telephone, it, it grew and grew and uh, was misinterpreted and they all believed he was dead. Uh, and finally a reporter found him and asked him about to comment on the rumor that he was dead. And the quote he said was, well, reports of that have been greatly exaggerated. So uh, now on to the sectors. Uh, as those of you who have been following us for some time, now into our 16th weekly video cast, six podcast, um, we've been building a long-term position in uh, the exploration and production subsector uh, predicated on the idea, you know, most people are fearing the leverage ratio in these companies, and there's no question that a, a good number of them are going to go bankrupt. But as I said in the Yahoo Finance uh, thing this week, and I strongly recommend you check it, I'm going to just point to it here. You can click right there under the popular post is that that's the opportunity to embrace because by the time that's all cleared up out and 10 or 15% go bankrupt, the good ones are already up one, two, three X over the next three to five years. So it's buying a basket right now and accepting the worst case scenario that 10 to 15% default as they get washed out. But the remaining 85% in your basket will be doubles or triples over a three to five year time time frame, And that's kind of how we're thinking about about the sector here. So as we move down here, uh, what I did was I laid out company by company, the top 30 weights that had earnings comps in obviously 2020, 2016, and all the way back to 20, 2009. And I just went through and listed the earnings power in each year. And that's how we got to the numbers in the chart above. $27 in 2009, negative 63 in 2016, and $68 in 2020. And this was much better than expected because when we started writing these articles um, and how you can trace the full magnitude of our thesis, click on this J. Paul Getty Energy Stock Market. For those of you listening on the podcast, you can just, again, go under to popular posts. This is a month or two old, but it's now moved back up to the most popular post this week. Uh, click on that. And once you get inside that article, you'll see the last three or four articles we've written over the last couple of months on the sector that has have all different nuances of the thesis and, and our rationale. But the first article that you'll find in the J. Paul Getty. I'll just show you really quickly here. Uh, the first one we wrote was October 12th. Snake oil, question mark, how portfolio managers view exploration and production stocks. And at that point, the earnings power had only improved about 32% from 2009 to 2019, which was still you know, an increase of 32% of earnings power, the price should have been trading up. It wasn't, it was trading at these levels. And the estimates going forward for 2020 were another 25% for the subsector. So I was saying, look, you've got 55% of earnings power growth and the price is trading the same. But uh, since we've redone the earnings this weekend, the divergences have even gotten wider. 
It's now not 55% of earnings power not accounted for. It's 150% growth over 2019, uh, over 2009 to 2020. And it's um, $131.97 more than 2016 when earnings were negative. So effectively, what the people that are short this subsector are saying right now the position you have to be taking is that estimates are uh the actualized earnings in 2020 are going to be 60 percent lower than estimates and our view is even if you cut estimates in half the basket is dramatically undervalued and we want to be long longer term owners of it um so that's kind of what makes a market right so their estimate is you know oil's done no one needs oil anymore it's all going to be renewables and um our view is that's over time down the road. In, in the meantime, yes, you have this short-term hiccup with coronavirus. But if you remember who the big buyers were in the 2009 crisis and the 2016 crisis when WTI got down to $50 a barrel, it was the Chinese that came in and stockpiled it and, and bought up the market. So I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that. In addition to you had the OPEC Plus meetings this week, and I talked about it again uh, on the Yahoo Finance they're going to decide on a cut. What's priced in was 500,000 barrels a day. Um, what they're talking about now is 600,000. I said I said on the show that I believe that they would go higher than 500 because uh, 500 was priced in. And the rumors coming out of the meeting now are they're at 600,000 and Russia is mulling it over and thinking about what they want to do. So my guess in the coming days and weeks, we'll see some nice cut just at the time that the corona virus death rate is plateauing off and demand will start to pick up in coming weeks coupled with a cut and coupled with uh, earnings remaining relatively strong in the United States, which we'll get to on the back half of the videocast podcast. So um, so when we started our thesis, the earnings power was 55% higher. Now it's over 150% higher and still trading down at the same price. And what I try to do is just kind of paint a simple picture that anyone can understand. And the thing that I came up with, because um, I hear a lot of people talking about uh, buying apartment buildings. So assume that you could buy an apartment building, the same building, for a million dollars. Okay. Uh, but the difference is in each scenario, the outcome is different. So in scenario A, you buy a million dollar apartment that yields. $270,000 of rental income. So same million paid, you get $270,000 a year in rental income. Good deal. In scenario B, you pay for a $1 million apartment building, but it yields zero in rental income. And the year that you buy it, it costs you $630,000 of repair expenses for the year. So no income, you paid a million bucks, and now you got to put another $630,000 in uh, for repairs. And the third scenario, C, is you buy the million-dollar apartment building and it yields $680,000 of rental income. So which scenario would you choose? A, where you put in the million and get 270. B, you put in a million plus another 630 and get zero. Or C, you put in a million and you get 680,000 in rental income. So if you chose C, you made the equivalent choice of buying the exploration and production index at today's prices. And sooner or later, this type of divergence does resolve itself. And we're betting that it's going to resolve itself to the upside. The bears are betting that it's going to be earnings that collapse 
to the downside and um, you know we're willing to accept that earnings are going to come in less than estimates but not by a 60% drop and that's what it would have to do to justify today's uh, really low prices relative to the underlying fundamentals. So we'll see how it plays out over the coming months and the question is you know as an investment decision, you know, you never do binary all in, all out type of crazy things. This is just being overweight relative to the benchmark, which now is four point, give or take 4.2% of the S&P 500. It's the lowest it's been in, uh, I think, since World War II. Bespoke put out a chart this morning. It's the lowest percentage of the S&P since, since World War II, coming down from 12 or 14% peak. And um, historically, buying indices, whether it's banks or when they get to such an extreme low level when no one's paying attention to, it, has been been a good time for inflections. But again, you've got to accept the fact that some are going to get washed out. So if you try to be smart and pick the one or two companies you think are going to do the best, you could get burned. Buy a basket and hold it for the long term, and don't think about it, and deal with you know the short-term volatility of coronavirus, et cetera. And I think uh, three to five years out, like we saw in the early 2000s, we had a similar type of scenario. And when it played out, it had a very, very happy ending, uh, this same movie. So um, also in the Yahoo video, we talked about billionaires who have been big buyers of energy while everyone else is selling and saying it's the end of energy. You know, guys like Buffett put $10.3 billion into uh, Oxy in 2000. 19, 10 billion in debt or in preferred, 300 million additional in equity. Um, Sam Zell is buying up assets. He's a distressed investor. Um, Tom Barrick is another billionaire. Lee Cooperman, Carl Icahn has 5.5 billion of his portfolio in energy. So while most people are selling, these smart guys who have made their fortunes buying when things were distressed and down and out are, are the net buyers in the last six to 12 months. And, and that's the money that I wanna follow. So um, at the end of this article, we went into the general market uh, sentiment had gone up a little bit week on week. Managers were uh, underweight again into the coronavirus. So if, this, if we get follow through on this move from uh, earlier this week, uh, from, from a little alleviation from the coronavirus fears, which came back before the weekend, but... You know, there are so many drugs now that are showing results anecdotally that they're now aggressively testing on humans between Gilead, between um, AbbVie, the HIV drug. So they've cured people. Now they just have to formalize the testing with humans before they do it on a wide scale. I know Gilead sent enough uh, antivirals to China for 500 patients to uh, get going on that. And as we get more and more positive results from that, and the uh, the rate of deaths uh, starts to, continues to decline, and people can get quantify the impact. Uh, we'll see a see a big recovery in that point. The fear and greed index jumped up a little bit this week, so people were taking on, on a little bit more risk as they got more clarity around coronavirus. We'll see more and more of that in the coming weeks. With uh, fits and starts, of course, you'll have good days and bad days. Um, and that was the core of the article. So definitely, if you're interested in this energy thesis, uh, watch the Yahoo Finance video from this week and click on this John Paul Getty energy stock market article that has 
all of our past articles, including a great article from Jennifer Ablin in the Financial Times in early December that laid out the case as well. And then uh, as far as this week goes, we also did our, we try to do two sectors a week where we just take a look at the earnings trends over the last 60 days. This week happened to be exploration and production and uh, they have stayed relatively stable for 2020 in the last 60 days, negative uh, 1.02%, which uh, uh, is, is quite good given uh, all the headwinds and, and seasonality of that. So we were pleased to see that outcome. Now moving on to general stock market and general earnings for the week, uh, they actually came in a little bit this week. So the earnings power of the S&P 500 came down from 177.51 to 176.47. At the time I was writing this this afternoon, we the S&P was trading at 33.27. Uh, didn't quite see where it, I think it closed somewhere around that range, but either way, up or down a few points. That implies a forward earnings multiple of about 18.85%, uh, 18.85 times forward earnings, which is high relative to the five-year average of 16.7 times, uh, but it could be considered low uh, relative to the type of multiple you would see at the end of a cycle. I'm not saying we're at the end of a cycle, but if we were, which many people believe we were, that multiple can creep up into the low 20s. So 21, 22, there would be room for, for some expansion there. But based on where we are on, at this elevated multiple, and one could argue it's not elevated relative to where the 10-year yield is. Today it was 1.58%. Uh, so when you consider that, it's, it's not as extreme because uh, rates are excessively low. But still, for the market to move sustainably higher from here, we're going to need to see an improvement in earnings. There's just no two ways about it. And I'm going to talk about three different potential catalysts for that, which I think uh, will, will make sense for a lot of you listening. First off is forward guidance. And this is actually coming in much better than expected. And even though you're hearing some coronavirus in the calls and a couple companies like Nike and, and uh, Tesla, et cetera, um, when you consider the impact now i'm going to talk a lot about boeing here i know i've been kind of pounding that drum i covered that on fox uh, on monday and also on yahoo on wednesday but boeing has now come down the 2020 estimates have come down 15 point 15 dollars and 99 cents in the last 60 days that's come off which is just a monster chunk off the earnings power of the total s p and in spite of that loss of 15, almost let's call it $16, the aggregate earnings power has remained relatively stable. Okay, so we came down a buck this week, but relative to the $16 bang on Boeing, that means in aggregate, all the rest of the companies are increasing guidance, and in some cases in a material way. So in the first week of December, uh, Duke did a survey, CEO, there were two surveys, CEO and CFO outlook on the economy, and they were the most pessimistic about the 2020 economy as they had been since 2009, which was a bottom in the market, not a top in the market, and uh, 2002, which was a near a bottom in the market, not near a top in the market. 
they had that same level of pessimism in early December. Well, guess what happened? One week later, they completed the phase one trade deal. Uh, so that's why you're seeing an increase in guidance. And I think that's going to continue. And again, it's as each day goes by and we get more and more positive results around coronavirus and that growth rate starts to decline and the self-heal rate is, is higher, uh, much higher than the death rate. But as the people who are given certain drugs that they're, they're aggressively testing continue to get healed, um, you know, guidance is going to just spring, spring right back up. The second survey that was taken in January was the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey, and 53% of them felt that the dollar was overvalued. The last time that many felt the dollar was this overvalued, there were two other times, but in 2002, the dollar proceeded to fall 40% over the next couple of years. Now, we're, we don't think anything like that's necessarily going to happen right now. But it, but even if the dollar comes in a few percent after you know the bid to buy the dollar to buy treasuries as a risk-off trade because of coronavirus abates, and we go back to a normalized market and the dollar potentially uh, weakens a few percent year on year in in the next quarter or two, that's going to materially help S and P earnings. And no one's looking at that as a possible catalyst, not a guaranteed catalyst, but a possible catalyst as. 40 to 50% of S&P revenues come from abroad. So a, a slight weakening year on year in the US dollar could have a meaningful benefit to S&P earnings. And finally, uh, when I say Boeing could be make or break for the markets for 2020, and I know I'm pounding the drum a little bit on this, but now with earnings coming down $16 over the last 60 days and the S&P still holding up their aggregate earnings, when this plane gets back online, that earnings power is going to immediately be tacked on where you're taking because you know Boeing doesn't have to go out and knock on doors to find customers you know they're in a duopoly situation the minute that plane is good that backlog is going to come right back that earning power is going to start to get priced in and that takes the aggregate S&P up to 190 at 190 where we're trading today it drops the multiple from 18.8 .8 times down to 17.2 times with a 1.58% 1, 10-year 1 we're trading cheap so and much more in line with the five-year average so keep that in mind and it was interesting because i was talking about that early in the week monday and i tuesday or wednesday and you saw boeing rally on it the faa came out and they're saying things are looking better than we expected which implies that maybe that plane gets online faster than mid-year uh and in which case things things really take off literally and figuratively and i think that's that's the that's the one to watch guys uh, and gals that is very very important so that's really what I wanted to emphasize on earnings this week. And lastly is the Fed. And I'm, I'm just going to um, talk about this point in a little bit of detail just to keep people's uh, uh, expectations on growth clear. And I've talked about this a few times, but basically from 2016 to 2018, over a two-year, some-odd-year period, the Fed raised rates nine consecutive times in a row and shrunk the balance sheet, did a quantitative tightening program, sucked uh, $785 billion of liquidity out of the system. So after two years of nonstop tightening and effort, they achieved their goal in December 2018 to slow the economy and they nearly crashed the stock market, uh, yielding a 20% correction in a couple of months. Uh, informally known as the Christmas Eve massacre for those who lived through it. 
And within a week of the lows, they realized the damage that they had done, and they immediately did an about face promising not to raise rates, uh, but the damage was done. So in 2019, we got three, we got an earnings recession, three consecutive quarters of negative year-on-year earnings growth. And by summertime, when they inverted the yield curve, they said, uh, oh yeah, maybe we, we did do, maybe our dependent data dependency was looking in the rear view mirror uh, versus the windshield. And maybe we ought to uh, reverse course. And they did. They cut three times and they've added $400 billion of liquidity back in the last, since uh, August. So, you know, call it the last three, four months. And what I want to set expectations around is it took them two years of trying to crush the economy to finally accomplish their task. So there's a lagged effect. So their data dependency is dependent on current data, which is rear, rear view looking um and it's not just this fed that made the mistake this has happened over and over throughout recent history and what we should be open to the possibility of is just as it took so long to slow the economy by tightening it's going to take some time to get growth going from weakening so they did three cuts from loosening three cuts in over the summer they've done 400 billion dollars of liquidity expect a six to nine month lag before that trickles down into the economy and you start to get the velocity going and the investment going where it starts to be felt certainly the coronavirus was an unexpected hiccup but the the thing that makes me believe that chair powell is not gonna make the same mistake twice and um, stop the accommodative policy too quickly is because of something he said in December, the December Fed meeting, which wasn't really covered because everyone was focused on the China phase one trade deal, uh, which came at the end of that week. Everyone was worried about tariff day, I think was December 15th. But he said that he, he made a case about the labor force participation rate, which I'm bringing up because of this morning's labor report. And pre-crisis, the labor force participation rate was about 67%. It dropped down all the way to uh, 63%. And in the last couple of years, it's starting to creep up. So it's uh, today, the labor force participation rate came in at 63.4%. And that half a percentage uh, gain is millions of jobs. And Larry Kudlow said something on Bloomberg this morning that he thinks another 6 million people could come back into the labor force. So there's plenty of slack. And these people that have they're not counted in the unemployment rate. So we have a 50-year historically low unemployment rate, 3.6%. It's something to celebrate. There's no question about it. But that would be even more incredible if we had 65% or 66% or back to 67% of the labor force participation rate going. Then the economy would just really start to hum. And that's what Chair Powell is talking about. He he wants to take these what they call discouraged workers who stopped looking post-crisis and have not benefited from the recovery. And he wants to run the economy hot, which will cause uh, wage inflation, which will attract them back into the market. It will get employers to compete and overlook you know, marks in their history where in a in a different environment where labor was abundant, they wouldn't hire people because maybe they had a a mark on their resume or a gap in their resume, or maybe they were in prison for you know some misdemeanor or something like that. And it's getting employers to overlook that, bring these people, make them productive again, give them uh, the accomplishment of going out and earning and working, et cetera. 
So if he stops too quickly, he's going to destroy that. And I think he learned that lesson in December of 2018. And now that he's seeing the results of the liquidity and the labor force participation rate starting to climb, I think he's going to stay on that trajectory and really change the country in a positive way. And to consider, number one, there's no, no inflation. So he hasn't met, he's not living up to his mandate of stable prices. So he has incentive to continue to increase the liquidity. Uh, number one, to live up to the congressional mandate. Number two, because of his commitment to help out, you know, two, three, four, five, six million people get back to work, get jobs, get some wage inflation, and start to participate and have that sense of accomplishment and self-worth. And uh, and he's and three, he's seeing it happen. So my sense is that while the liquidity is kind of stabilized in the last few weeks, they've got you know, they did $785 million of liquidity contraction, $785 million of liquidity contraction during quantitative tightening. They've only reliquified $400 billion worth. They could easily go another $300, $400 billion to get back to where they were. I don't think we're going to see any more cuts in the short term. I know the market's starting to price that in. I, I think we're more likely to see liquidity enhancement, which will be sufficient to get that labor force participation rate humming, to get GDP growth going. And while this is all happening, unless they screw it up and they pull back liquidity too soon, but I don't think so because they promised to pull it back in January and then they pushed it off to March. And now they're saying Q2 when they were saying March. So I think they'll keep put as long as they keep seeing low to no inflation, or, you know, let it run hot for six to eight months up above two and a half, which, you know, they're nowhere near that. They'll keep going as long as they see more and more people getting jobs and inflation staying subdued. They'll continue to provide the liquidity, probably keep rates stable. And all I would say to those of you listening and watching is allow the lagged effect to come in. Just like it, you know, the two years of tightening, you didn't feel the effect until... A year later, the impact when they really slowed the economy and inverted the yield curve, they just started liquidity now. They did the cuts in the summer, so that's only been four months. Allow six to nine months and look what's going to happen in the back half. And then if you get Boeing back online and add that $16 back to earnings, we're totally underpriced here. So so these are some catalysts that can you know allow better than expected things to happen for 2020. Um, that uh, that maybe people aren't aren't looking at, and also keep in mind on the flip side, we've run up 18% on the S&P just since the summer, 25% on the Nasdaq just since the summer. So yeah, you know we might have a little bit more room to run here, but at some point, whether it's this quarter or next quarter, we'll probably have to digest some of those gains before we can make the next leg higher get some of those earnings back from Boeing, from companies starting to get more confident as, as this coronavirus gets contained. But uh, unbalanced, there's some positive catalysts in the background. So today's labor uh, employment report was positive. It's nice to see that labor force participation rate go up. You know, we look at it objectively sometimes, oh, that's 40 basis points. No, that's 2 million people's lives. You know, that's huge. Um, every, everyone who's wanting a job, getting a job, people who have a job, even at the low ends, wages are rising at a greater percentage than people at the high end. These are very, very good and constructive things. So uh, the theme of this week that I just wanted to lay out was the case for energy. There's more than enough information on the site you can go through. Um, 
And if you like the video, if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe or whatever they tell you to do on that. Uh, but other than that, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. And I hope you found that helpful and make it a great week. Bye for now.